9, 12, 10, 28, 2, 23. This is Deep State Radio, coming to you direct from our super-secret studio in the third sub-basement of the Ministry of SNARK in Washington, D.C., and from other undisclosed locations across America and around the world. Hello, and welcome to another episode of Deep State Radio. I am David Rothkopf, and I am your host, and I'm here in New York City. Joining us today from somewhere in the vicinity of Washington, D.C., we have Rosa Brooks in a car with her mother. Um, She's never in one place for too long. It makes her a more difficult target. Hi, Rosa. Hi, David. (laughs) We have in in Washington, D.C., in a more stable uh, location, uh, the always stable Evelyn Farkas of the German Marshall Fund. Hello, Evelyn. Hello, hello. And in London, England, freezing, wearing four or five coats and burning of furniture because it's April in England. <laughs> we have Corey Shocking. Very, very sad um, uh, situation there in England. By the way, Corey, has anything happened in England we should know about on Brexit? Yeah, right. Give us a Brexit because... <laughs> You know, I look at it every day and they say, oh, my God, oh, my God, oh, my God. But maybe something tomorrow. But I still don't really get it. What's happening? Oh, uh, yes. Uh, What is happening (laughs) is on Friday, um, the, the British state bounces out of the European Union because they triggered Article 50, which is the article of the European treaties that um, that announces two years until we are no longer a part of this uh, union. And they didn't have a plan for, well, they had a plan for what they wanted to have happen. It was completely unrealistic. They seemed to forget, the British government seemed to forget that uh, other people have to agree to your plan too. Uh, and they had wildly unreasonable expectations. Goldman Sachs just did a study that uh, shows that the Brexit turmoil has cost the British government, excuse me, has cost the British economy $600 million a week since they triggered the Article 50 withdrawal in 2016. That's a 2.4% contraction of the British GDP for an outcome that now looks more and more like the result of which will be Britain either revoking Article 50 and remaining in the European Union on Friday or agreeing to have a referendum sometime over the course of the next year when they have an extension of their Article 50 mandate uh, to hold a referendum, which will in all likelihood result in Britain not leaving the European Union. That's where we are. That is crazy. And I think Britain should have, you know, what the EU should have done was offered membership to Evelyn because she is very stable and she would not have done (laughs) what the what the UK has done would you well, you wouldn't you wouldn't have pulled out of the European Union no and I mean if I wanted to be part of the European Union I actually could because I have two 
um, Hungarian born um, parents who are, who, who have dual uh, citizenship um, since communism fell, you know, they got their passports back. So in theory, I could become actually a stable member of the European Union, but I have well, no yeah. interest in doing that. I'm yeah, very Hungary. happily, How happily. Hungary is not going in such. Yeah. Healthcare. Mm. <laughs> I could get better health care and it would be a lot cheaper because I'll tell you as a consultant in this town, you have to pay your own health care and it's an arm and a leg, pun intended. Well, that's true. But on the other hand, Hungary is a pretty big mess too. Yes, that is true. It, 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 it is a pretty big mess. Well, thank you for that. Yeah, suffering. and it's only stable because it's not a liberal democracy. It's a bad kind of stable. Yeah, no. It's, not all stability is good, David. No, believe me, I know that. I, <laughs> um, and, and, you know, my grandmother was from Hungary, so I'm partially Hungarian myself. So yeah, I have, we have connection uh, to uh, the great history of yes. Hungary. Um, when my <laughs> great father, conflicted history of Hungary. Yeah, well, exactly. Um, but let's, let's pick up in a slightly different place. I appreciate that summary, Corey, because I don't really... You know, I literally read about this all day long, and I still don't understand exactly where they are. But um, I, I want to pick up. A, <laughs> it's boring. That's why you don't understand. Well, it's nobody just, it's, who is not British finds this interesting. But it's also it's like, well, we're going to have a meeting today, and then we're going to discuss options, and then the options fail, and then it's like, well, there'll be another meeting tomorrow, and now Theresa May is going off to talk to the Germans, and they're going to come up it's with Groundhog a, Day. Yeah, it's a very very strange. Situation. I mean, don't they should just have new elections and I don't know, get new leadership, you know, figure out what the they should run on. They should run the elections okay, on the basis here. of Brexit or not. Yes, right? you are exactly right, Evelyn. Unfortunately, neither party wants to hold elections. The conservatives don't want to hold elections because they have already forced their prime minister to uh, concede that she will not stand uh, for election ever again, and they don't have a candidate to put forward because all of the leading contenders are the clown car that brought the Brexit um, debate to you, uh, with the exception of several young, talented members of parliament like Tom Tugendhat, who David's going to be talking to oh. on on another podcast, the chairman of the Foreign mm -hmm. Affairs Committee in Parliament. But for the most part, these are the people who created this train wreck. Um, and the Labor Party doesn't want to hold elections because they have a Trotskyite leader of the party. <laughs> and despite people being indignant at the foolishness that the Conservative Party has put the country through, the the Labour Party is still behind by six points in the polls, so they'd lose the election if they allowed it to go to an election. And that is such a damning condemnation of the leadership of the British Labour Party that it should make your head spin. Yeah. Oh, my God. What is it, Rosa? I was just suggesting that maybe there's a way for the EU to just annex Great Britain and turn it into a colony. Oh, that's a nice idea. <laughs> there have been a lot of folks who have pointed out that uh, if this had happened in a former British colony, uh, that the British government would be very condescendingly talking about democratic failures of governance. 
Yeah, well, yes. that's a, that's if, a good if, if Bibi Netanyahu can can simply assert Israeli sovereignty over the West Bank, I don't see why the uh, Europeans can't just assert sovereignty over uh, what remains of the UK. Well, no, and that worked so well for William the Conqueror. No, it generally works works out really nicely for all involved. Um, yeah, that's a good point. Um, <laughs> let's just, uh, I, I'm afraid that this episode is just going to be posting right around the time of the Israeli elections. And so I'm a little loath to get too deeply into the weeds there. Uh, but I'm happy to discuss for a moment uh, this uh, statement that Netanyahu made about uh, annexing um, settlements uh, as the move if he's reelected, which looks quite possible. Um, and uh, uh, let me start with you, um, Evelyn. Um, uh, do you think that's a healthy step? And do you think the United States' is, <laughs> Sorry. Uh, role of encouraging that step is a healthy step? No, actually, though, on that step, I, I believe, last I checked, the administration had not made a statement with regard to uh, the West Bank, if I'm correct. Um, so, so in that respect, uh, there's been unusual kind of restraint. But as we know, on paper, uh, you know, President Trump uh, essentially awarded um, the Golan to Israel, um, which again was another area that uh, Israel seized in '67 as a result of the war at the time, and has held on to since then. Even though the international community, the United Nations, etc., does not recognize its um, occupation, if you will, of the Golan. Nevertheless, de facto, the international community has accepted it, but President Trump went ahead and decided that it should be de jure decided in favor of Israel, which of course was deeply upsetting to the international community that thinks it has a say in this, uh, our European allies first and foremost, and then of course other UN members. So um, this is different because President Trump, to my knowledge, hasn't said anything. Uh, it's and it's more alarming, of course, because, of course, the the the, Gaza, the Golan is one issue and there's a different demographic and a different history. The, the Gaza obviously gets right to the heart of whether you can have a two-state solution, a Palestinian state existing side by side with Israel. What Netanyahu has been veering towards, a kind of in a salami style, you know, over time with all the settlements and with his attitude towards the Palestinian leadership in, in West Bank and also Gaza, has been essentially gradually eroding the idea of the two-state solution, which, of course, our president was happy to, to question as soon as he got into office, maybe even before he got into office. And, and that's dangerous because I think, frankly, it endangers the state of Israel because uh, we don't believe, it doesn't sound like, at least under Netanyahu, he's going to give full rights to the, those Palestinians that, who would then come under, Isra under the Israeli state, um, which would be undemocratic. And, of course, a lot of is, um, Israelis on the left are not happy with this either because they want a Jewish state, but they want a, a Jewish democracy. So um, the, it, it opens up all kinds of problems, and all it does is ratchet up the tension. He's playing to the right, he being Netanyahu, playing to the right, trying to get the right wing to support him, trying to save his political hide. He's done this time and time again, and frankly, it's, it's you know, it's very—he's doing it 
I believe, at the expense of Israel and, and the expense of U.S. interests. It only benefits him. And, I, and it makes me uh, reflect back on when I was in Israel a couple of years ago and the Israeli liberals were saying to myself and the other members of our group that we had Trump before you guys had Trump, meaning Netanyahu, like Trump, looks out just for himself and his political interests and Israel's interests come second. Well, it raises another interesting possibility, which is terrifying possibility, uh, Corey. Uh, and um, and then I'll go to Rosa with this. But uh, and that is that as we look towards the last two years of the Trump administration, people like Bibi Netanyahu are going to see it as the, as a timer, and they're going to say, "I've got two years to do my worst," because. Trump will support me no matter what I do. And if I annex things, if I violate international laws, if I violate norms, he'll back me. So let me get it all done before I get a more rational government in there again then. And that could you know, make things very tough in a variety of places, whether it's Saudi or Israel um, or elsewhere in the world, over the course of the next couple of years, don't you think? Yes, I do think that... Um that governments behaving in ways that violate uh, international law, that violate American values, that violate the norms of the American international order created after 1945, all of those violators will feel emboldened. I've, I actually think, though, that uh, to tack back to our previous podcast, uh, you aren't imagining nearly grisly enough the possibilities, uh, which is that we may also see a parallel internationally to the incitement that President Trump has engaged in um, in American domestic politics uh, and encouraging that kind of behavior not just tolerating that kind of behavior. I also think that um, that America's enemies will also see opportunities. I could see the Russians trying to test whether NATO solidarity would hold uh, in an attack on one of the Baltic states, for example. Uh, I really think it's a very dangerous period and a very brittle one. But here's the worst possibility, David, which is that uh, they are so confident that President Trump will be reelected that they're not, that the sand in the hourglass isn't two years, it's six years. You know, Rosa, I have to say, you have really done a job on Corey. I remember when Corey was. I know. She was so optimistic. <laughs> Is it the cold in England? What is happening here? I, I, I congratulate That's what living in England does to people. They're like, they're like, they're California optimist, and then the next thing you know, they're like, they're, they're like Thomas Hobbes. This, but this raises an interesting possibility. Maybe all foreign policy is a form of seasonal affective disorder. And if you're, you know, you're, you know, you're in a sunny place and you're cheerful, you have a positive outlook. If it gets cold and gloomy, mm -hmm. you have no, no, you don't. 
You know what? I feel like we should let science answer this question. And I ought to test the possibility by going to lots of sunny beachfront properties and stretched out listening to baseball games in the sunshine. It's a nice it's a nice idea. By the way, I like the Instagram shot of you in your St. Louis Cardinals. <laughs> Thank uniform. you, David. Yeah. Yeah, no, that was that was that was a highlight. Um, so, Rosa, um, to pick up on this theme of where this can all lead over the course of the next couple of years, as people race to do their worst while Trump is in office. Um, I'm not. I'm not even as worried about the people like Netanyahu racing to do his worst while Trump is in office. I'm actually still kind of worried about the John Boltons right here at home. Uh, who's also clearly racing to do his worst in the limited time he has before he does something that annoys Trump and is executed, uh, like Kirsten Nielsen. Um, so I'm, I'm thinking in particular of something that has also played right into Netanyahu's hands, which is the designation of the Iranian Revolutionary Guard as a terrorist organization, which, of course, immediately led Iran to declare that, that U.S. Central Command is a terrorist organization. And all I could think was, oh, this is, <laughs> this is not a good way to ratchet down global tensions. Uh, it is good for Netanyahu, who gets to say, hey, guys, stick with me, and I'll stick it to the Iranians. And, you know, you got to trust me and my pal Donald. Um, but, 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 yeah, I mean, I actually think that both on the level of people like, like Bolton, but also on the level of U.S. domestic uh, uh, policies, um, not just our homeland security and border policies, but also the rise of the white nationalist right in this country and so on. There, there are quite a lot of actors that are thinking to themselves, we've got, you know, best case six years, worst case two years, let's, let's get going because this is a window of opportunity that's not going to last forever. So one of the reasons that Rosé is excellent is that she just follows in, in, into the segues that I was going to make in any event. Um, and I wanted to get to this IRGC designation for a couple of reasons, um, uh, Evelyn, one of which was um, that it does connect to this development in, in, in this sort of race um, uh, to do the worst in a, in a couple of years uh, that, that, you know, with Netanyahu and, and the Saudis uh, both. But it is, it seems, one of those moves that while... There was bipartisan call for this a few years back. Um, does close off avenues with the Iranians without appreciably opening up um, any new opportunity for um, a better relationship or a more stable situation in that reason, region? But uh, yeah, I know it's an issue on which there are many views. And let me let me turn to you and say, do you think there is some merit? to this declaration of the IRGC as a terrorist organization or designation? I mean, practically, I don't think so. Um, you know, at this point, it's just uh, ratcheting up tension between, you know, the, the U.S. government and the Iranian government. And I'm not sure whether that's going to help with the long-term issue, which is maybe helping the Iranian opposition, you know, uh, helping Iran become more democratic, um, helping the IRGC become weaker, you know. <laughs> I mean, I, I just don't know that it's going to change anything tangibly. So, so in, the, in the war of, you know, 
public opinion and the question of the future of Iran, I don't think it affects anything. And then as far as, you know, money and trade and all of that is concerned, um, I confess I'm not, I haven't looked into the details of this, but my sense is given the strength of the sanctions we have already imposed upon Iran, this is not going to make a, a, a difference. But I did note that there was some protests coming out of the Pentagon. So I don't know, maybe the other ladies know something about um, the impact on some other aspect of our, you know, policy. So I, so I'll just leave it at that. I mean, as far as I can tell, this doesn't, this doesn't tangibly change anything. And I'm not, it, it just reads to me like, another one of these we're we're so tough we're tougher than obama kind of moves that we've seen out of this administration that don't actually make america safer and don't make iran more democratic and don't make the middle east any more peaceful well that's an interesting question corey because you could say well getting out of jcpoa was that or getting out of, you know this designation was that or helping the saudis with uh, nuclear energy technology sends a message like that or being close to the Saudis or helping them in Iran is a message like that. Um, but the question is, when you take all of those things together, do they signify something more? And do they suggest to you motion towards some kind of next stage ratcheting up of tensions? Or is this just posturing? It does feel like just posturing to me. I... My theory of the case about Trump foreign policy is, uh, again, it goes back to Rosa's point earlier that the president doesn't care about the policy consequences of anything, that I, I think President Trump makes dramatic statements and signs pointless paperwork with flourish, um, and then the administration either lacks the capacity to follow through or never had any intention of doing so. And, and President Trump's supporters believe he's done this because of all of the tough talk, but it doesn't have any policy consequences because they don't actually care about policy. I also genuinely do not believe that Donald Trump is itching to start a war in the Middle East. So I think Evelyn's right. This is a lot of a lot of hawkish talk that signifies nothing because the president's overriding reflex seems to me to want to write off the military conflicts we are already engaged in. And you know, war with Iran, we would win it, but it wouldn't it it would take a lot of doing. There would be a lot of damage. There would be a lot of deaths and a lot of consequences. And I just don't think President Trump has the stomach for that. But do you think, I mean, he, he may not have the stomach for it, but let me ask you a question. You know, Pompeo seems itching for something like this. The Saudis are, Netanyahu is, Bolton is. What do you do next? What's the next posturing then that you do? Well, uh, let's see. Has the Iranian Central Bank been sanctioned any time recently for funding terrorism? Because uh, that would have, from the White House perspective, the added benefit of saying 
of overriding the Federal Reserve of the United States that feels very queasy when you start uh, sanctioning central banks because they would like that not to be a major policy tool because they don't like the reciprocity that it exposes us to. Um, but, but I don't think it matters that Pompeo and the National Security Advisor uh, are itching for, I don't think it matters what anyone except President Trump wants to have happen. And I genuinely believe based on the other choices he has made about the wars that we are fighting and the Middle East writ large, that the president's just not going to make that choice. What do you think, Evelyn? Well, I mean, I, I, I'm, I'm a little bit of two minds. I mean, on the one hand, I agree with my myself, you know, my earlier point about this being a lot of posturing, adding up <laughs> to nothing, right? But, but on the other hand, um, there is a little voice in the back of my head because I, I know people who work in the government, and um, and some of them are worried that that people like Bolton. Are are kind of itching for a fight with Iran, so um, I don't feel completely convinced by my earlier statement. You know, I do think we need to be on the lookout for signs that this that that some of these folks in this administration might be willing to 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 take some other kind of action that you know, in, in, including use of military force. I don't think I do agree with Corey and and you know the earlier. Well, with Corey's comment that this president isn't itching, this president doesn't really want to start a war. However, this president has seen that if he uses force in a limited fashion, he can get a lot of applause, a la the attacks last year against the Syrian sites where they were, where they, from which they used chemical weapons against their people. Um, so when President Trump conducted those pin, pin prick, if you will, those targeted attacks against that base, he received across the board praise from the deep state, if you will, or from the DC cognoscenti, the foreign policy establishment. So uh, I wouldn't put it past him to be tempted by something like that if it was put in front of him by Bolton, but I, I don't, I agree that he's not itching for that kind of fight. So it's, I think we all need to keep on the lookout the other thing was in the Times, um, in the New York Times coverage of this, they also highlighted the fact that Netanyahu noticed that the president took this action, this designation of the RGC, and thanked him for it. So, and noted that this would this would somehow bolster Bibi's um, chances in the election. So, it's possible that the Israelis asked us to do this. I don't know. Uh, well, it, it is possible. It seems like Trump wants to do anything in his power to keep BB in place, because if BB leaves, it's going to make it harder for us to uh, see the long-awaited Jared Kushner peace plan, which I know everybody in the region is. <laughs> oh, my gosh. That's yes. the sound of me snorting with derision, David. I know. I, it was very clear. There was no question, but that was not just a snort, but a derisive snort. By the way, everybody, you might say, what happened to Rosa? Did you just, you know, dis disconnect her? Uh, no. Rosa was driving her mother someplace, and that's because Rosa <laughs> is a good, good daughter, 
She and is she, a good daughter. And she had to take her mother out of the car and unload some things. So she has stepped off for the last couple of minutes for this episode. But we support Rosa being a loving daughter. And we think that all children should take care of their parents. Um, notably my children, by the way. But, but, <laughs> um, but they, Which at this point primarily involves getting emails from them say, saying things like, stop drinking Diet Coke. You should, you should. Your children tell you that? Often, frequently. I have to say, David, I would take that as such a compliment that their list of your vices was topped by Diet Coke. That's yeah. a pretty mild form of censure for, for I know. most children. <laughs> well, I mean, I think they, you know, if they were to say to me, stop eating so much fatty, it would be really, you know. <laughs> It would be hurtful. <laughs> you have a very nice family. Yeah, you do have a very nice family. <laughs> they, they would not. They would not do no, that. I think there are probably more families where they say, "Don't eat so much fatty." Yeah, well, that's possible, but no, no, I'm very fortunate in that department. But um, you know, as as we do look forward to this, you know, I was watching Pompeo as he was talking about this thing, and he really seems to have a real animus towards the Iranians. And when I look at the world right now, one of the things I see about Iran is the Saudis are itching for it. Um, the other Gophis are itching for it. The Israelis are itching for it. Even the Iranians, to some degree, um, and the U.S. would all benefit from a ratcheting up of crisis that had the effect of increasing world oil prices. Um, in fact, every one of the countries I just mentioned would benefit from higher oil prices. Um, and so, you know, there may not be a move towards war, um, but this increased tension is an interesting thing. Now, the flip side, Corey, is that the president doesn't really like to get into that kind of thing, as you suggested, and that he's much more likely to spend the next couple of years picking like a bully on innocence, like immigrants at the border and Puerto Rico and other things like that, where he can bully people around uh, and appear to be tough and uh, play to his base, but he's not going to get into the messiness of actual armed conflict. I do think that that is my assessment, that, at, that uh, you know, it's not like... So even if Pompeo and Bolton are, you know, frothing at the mouth for war with Iran, and even if Lindsey Graham joins in with them, uh, you have a you have an eminently sensible patriot in Dan Coates, the director of national intelligence, who will tell the president what this is likely going to be like. You will have the uniform military. Uh, recall even that when people suggested that uh, Syria should be prevented from using its aircraft, to drop barrel bombs on Syrian civilians, that General Dempsey, the chairman of the Joint Chiefs of Staff, outlined a military plan that required taking down all of the air defenses of the country and an enormous undertaking. The American military is not in the habit of, of uh, supporting pinprick strikes. That tends to be... Uh, Secretary of State uh, 
activity to minimize the military force it would take to undertake stuff. So, so both the, the director of central intelligence and the chairman of the Joint Chiefs of Staff, whether the present or the, uh, autumn, the future coming autumn, aren't going to say this is going to be easy. They're, they're going to outline what this looks like. And the president's going to howl at the moon and not do it, I think. Well, the howling at the moon is 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 certainly to be expected. I'm, I, in fact, I'm trying in in my efforts to understand the Trump administration better. Next week, I'm going to go see Glenda Jackson as King Lear on Broadway, which. Uh, uh, I th- okay, but who is Cordelia in this tragedy, Ruth, David? Ruth Wilson. Do you know Ruth Wilson? She's no. a great. She was well. She was the star on TV of *The Affair*, but she is better known uh, to British television fans as the sort of psycho killer nemesis girlfriend of uh, Idris Elba in *Luther*, the series *Luther*. Mm. Um, she's a she's a very good actress, a very good Cordelia choice, I think. Anyway, um, uh, as we. Uh, Look forward to you know the, the these these kind of developments. Um, uh, is there a place, Evelyn, where you think conflict is most likely to happen by accident? Oh, that is a really good question. Where conflict is most likely to happen by accident, it's probably still Syria um, because. You have this crazy lethal mix of the Hezbollah right there on the Israeli border and the Israelis, you know, lashing out periodically with military force. The, and then, of course, the shoot down of the Russian plane, which by the Syrians, which they blamed on the Israelis. <laughs> so, I mean, we already had, of course, then... Then we go back even further. There was the Turkish, the or was it the yes, the Turkish shoot down of the Russian plane in like 2015. So there already have been a number of mishaps, you know, basically misunderstandings, miscommunications. Layered on top of that have been the deliberate acts that the Israeli government has taken against Syrian and Hezbollah forces in order to uh, essentially either destroy some of their stockpiles or to send a signal that they should come no further. And then the Turks are mixed in now there with the Kurds, with us, and the Russians are very interested in getting into that area as well, the, the area in the, in the Northwest. So I, I, I'm afraid because there are no, no clear rules of the road there. Everything, I mean, there are some operational delineations and some kind of de-confliction, if you will, but the risk is still great. And every day that we don't have a political settlement of the conflict in Syria, the risk increases. And, you know, again, I've said this before on here with regard to Israel, you know, the Israeli government, they don't have a guarantee from Russia or from Iran with regard to, or sorry, or from Syria with regard to Iran and Hezbollah. They can, neither Russia nor Syria can keep Iran and Hezbollah from threatening Israel. And so that is also, again, part of the Syrian settlement that needs to be resolved. Do you have a, do you have a favorite 
pick for where is this accidentally going to come off the rails, Corey. I remember many months ago, or number, I guess it was January. You 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 were you were betting the South China Sea, but I was just I'm wondering if your thoughts have changed. No, I'm still betting the South China Sea uh, because even though there is a slim margin for error on the problem of North Korea and its nuclear weapons, I think the South Koreans are are so terrified of the recklessness of the Trump administration that they are conceding policy objectives right and left in order to try and buy a wider margin for error. And I also uh, don't think the Russians uh, are as brazen as the Chinese. I begin to be more worried about a failing China than I am about a succeeding China uh, because my general theory of the countries that the United States fights wars with is they're dead enders. They're people who don't, they're governments who don't have a positive vision for their own future because we're actually pretty good at dealing with ambitious rising powers. We're bad at dealing with powers that are willing to have a bad outcome for themselves as long as it's bad for somebody else too. Um, and I worry that as China's economy uh, slows down and it can't navigate the middle income trap and the and President Xi Jinping grows more and more paranoid and more and more repressive uh, that that the Chinese government could invest much more deeply than they have even done already into trying to mobilize, a reckless nationalism that is legitimating for the Communist Party, and that that could lead them to be even more aggressive in the South China Sea. And, and there, having a Secretary of Defense who doesn't know anything about strategy, policy, history, uh, and uh, the, the general hawkishness of Bolton and Pompeo could combine in a way that that I think that's the likeliest scenario for disaster. Well, we've only got about two minutes left, but let me throw a curveball uh, or maybe a little gasoline on onto that uh, <laughs> uh, onto that an analysis. Um, Which was a really good analysis. Yeah, it, it was a really good analysis. Now, what I, would thank you? What would slow down the Chinese economy? Uh, cause problems for them? Cause tensions between? them and the United States. Uh, and you can think of a lot of things. You might start thinking, well, what's Trump going to do? How about a trade war? Well, how about this? How about hey. you point two complete nincompoops to the Federal Reserve Board oh, who gosh. decide that what they really think the United States needs is for um, markets to boom and for interest rates to go down. And what happens when interest rates go down? The dollar gets weaker. And if the dollar gets weaker, we buy fewer Chinese goods, and our goods are more competitive against the Chinese. This might be considered to be um, an artificial advantage by the Chinese. But you know, the president is is you know n n nominating the two least qualified people for the Federal Reserve Board in memory, purely because he wants policies that will help him gain reelection. 
and without any regard for A, the U.S. economy, or B, knock-on effects like the ones that we're talking about here. And, and you know, nobody- You've chilled you know, my bones. Wow. Well, then Corey, Corey, Corey knows what you're feeling at the moment since- <laughs> that's, <laughs> that's right, since I'm wearing my warmest winter coat. But I agree, it, it is exacerbating David, it makes the circumstances worse. It, it, well, it, it, exactly. We're in a we're in a dark place, but sometimes there's so many bad things going on that you don't know which to look at. And when you see, well, oh, he named Herman Cain, and isn't that ridiculous? Because you know he's a pizza guy; he doesn't understand anything about economics. And oh yeah, he's been serially accused of sexual harassment. And oh yeah, he quoted the Pokemon movie in a political debate. You know, isn't that okay. funny? David, I have to defend the honor of Pizza Guys since one of the closest friends of my childhood runs Mary's Pizza Shack all over California. And he knows a he is a better qualified candidate for the Federal Reserve than Herman Cain. Well, and that's by the way, he's not a creep. Well, okay. <laughs> First of all, let's draft him. Let me be absolutely clear I am all for pizza all the time. Okay. Um, in fact, I. You know, my apartment in New York City is at the epicenter of the pizza neighborhood of New York City. <laughs> I, you know, one there is a pizzeria directly under it, and the living room okay, smells your of pizza. have been established, David. Uh, yeah, no, it smells of pizza 24-7, but, uh, which is hard, by the way, folks, it's hard. But, um, uh, <laughs> but, in, but in any event, I, I, you know, I think the point is Herman Cain is a clown, and you might laugh it up, but it could also yeah. produce tensions with China that could get out of hand. And that's not funny. Absolutely I, you know, that, true. Uh, right. Yeah, well, that's that's where we are at the end of this episode of Deep State Radio, folks. But I'm sure next week we'll bring with it the spring warmer <laughs> weather in the United Kingdom, <laughs> a, a solution to the question of what will happen next with Brexit. Uh, and, um, and happiness, you know, we will we will be in a we will be in a post. I will do the, my very best to uh, envision the flame of enlightenment coming from Buddha's blue hair and reconstitute the tiara of optimism upon my pointy little head. We are counting on that, Corey, because that tiara of optimism gets us through from week to week. Um, uh, all right. Well, I've got to now move on and uh, uh, get ready for the next exciting thing we're doing here at Deep State Radio. You should go to dsrnetwork.com and uh, look that up. Go to our National Security Magazine podcast or other podcasts and join us again sometime soon here on Deep State Radio. Thank you to Rosa, who is off with her mother. Thank you to Evelyn. And thank you to Corey. Stay warm. Deep State Radio is a production of the Deep State Radio Network a division of TRG Interactive Media. Our podcast today was produced in cooperation with Goat Rodeo Productions and was supervised by Ian Enright. Join us again for another episode of Deep State Radio. If you don't, we know where to find you.